Amen. Glad you're here. Ephesians 2, let's stand for the reading of God's Word today. And we're going to read verses 18 through verse 22. We'll begin in, I'll begin in verse 18. We will read 19, 21, and 22 together. I'll do 18 and 20 alone. Verse 18 says, For through Him we, have, you know, we both have access by one Spirit unto the Father. Together, 19. Now, therefore, ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God, and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth unto an holy temple in the Lord, in whom ye also are builded together for an habitation of God through the Spirit. Let's read 22 together. Ready? In whom ye also are builded together for an habitation of God through the Spirit. I'm going to preach a sermon back in our Back to the Basic series entitled this, The Structure of the Church. The Structure of the Church. Let's pray. Lord, thank you this morning for a chance to open up the Bible and study it and preach it and, Lord, to grow from it. I pray that truth would resonate in our hearts. And, Lord, we would value church even more than we already do. Lord, may it um, be impressed in our heart, God, the value of it. Lord, the um, ways we can grow with it and ways we can contribute to it. And, Lord, I pray if there's one here today that doesn't know Christ as Savior, that today would be the day they come to a, a saving knowledge of the cross. Lord, they can, they can enter heaven one day because their sins have been washed away. Thankful, Lord, for the testimonies of people having been saved this past week. And, Lord, um, to know that they have been atoned. And, Lord, we ask that um, you would do something special here amongst us today. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. Now, we've spent the last month or so teaching and preaching on the Christian home. I hope that's been a blessing to each one of you here in some way or another. Uh, 2018 is the year that we are getting back to the basics, back to the basics. Um, we are working to understand the fundamentals of the faith, the fundamentals of the Bible, uh, the basic teachings of the Bible, and filling in the gaps of those of you that have been in church for a while uh, and maybe have... Um, um, uh, maybe uh, have missed some things along the way. And those of you that are new to the Christian faith, new to um, uh, our Baptist church here, uh, getting in and understand that we are biblicists and we want you to know the Bible and have a solid foundation for which you can grow and you can uh, learn in the Lord and you can uh, uh, reach new heights uh, for the Lord here. So uh, to just give you a quick review, then we'll jump into... Uh, uh, so we're going to look at what we've done and then look at the direction we're going January, the month of January, we spent quite a bit of time understanding uh, the uh, the authenticity and authority of the Bible. We talked about how that we know that God's word is true and accurate. God uh, inspired his word when he gave it. He preserved his word down to us today into our language. And we talked about why we use the King James Version of the Bible here. Spent a lot, lot of time on that. If you missed that, if you came to our church after that, I would encourage you to go online and pull up our webpage and listen to uh, the sermons on the uh, authenticity and authority of the Bible. So we had to establish that the Bible is true, because if the Bible isn't true, then what are we doing here? The Bible has to be true. 
And so after we got the Bible established as being God's perfect, holy word, uh, inspired and then preserved down to us today, uh, after we got that established, then we could move into uh, the next most important doctrine uh, in the Bible, or rather the, the pinnacle or the, um, uh, the, the, the keystone uh, uh, truth of the Bible, and that is the doctrine of salvation. How does a person make peace with God? So we spent the month of February and part of the month of March uh, getting back to the basics and talking about the science of salvation. What a great, sweet time that was in church. We had many, many folks get saved uh, during the church services as we talked about that and preached on that and explained that. And many people during the invitation bowed their head and trusted Christ as their Savior. Many of them were even baptized. Then we got to the month of March and we got back to the basics when it comes to the Christian home. How to have a marriage that uh, pleases the Lord and how to have uh, Christian parenting that and, and grandparenting that pleases the Lord. So we've established that the Bible is true and that the cross saves. The Bible is true. And the cross saves. So where do we go from here? All right, I, I don't think there's anyone in here that knows the Bible well that would uh, be able to argue against that concept that the Bible being true and the cross saving are the pinnacles of our faith. You gotta get those two down. Where do you go next? Well, as I began to pray and, and read and study and ask the Lord to, to guide me and direct me in this back to the basic series, um, I feel very strong that the next thing to emphasize, uh, as what is important to the Lord is the concept of church. The concept of church. I can't think of a more important truth for you to understand and accept than that of Christ's church. Um, uh, what it is, how it works, what it's for. Many people in today's culture see church as a cultural relic. A cultural relic. It was something that grandma was devoted to. And it was something that mom and dad did occasionally. And uh, now it is something that the average young adult in this area does twice a year. Right? Church attendance is highest on Christmas and Easter. And I'm thankful for everyone that comes to church on Christmas and Easter. And I'm glad they at least go then. But, you know, um, if you go back and watch black and white TV, going to church on Sunday is something everybody did. There was a day where blue laws were in effect, and the only thing open on Sundays were gas stations and not even all of them in hospitals. Maybe one grocery store in town. The reason was because everybody went to church and everybody rested. And now church has been uh, scheduled uh, uh, out of life. And church is uh, now it's no longer the in thing in our culture to do. And so people, by and large, just don't do it. So what has happened? What has happened to our culture? Um, now, let me just say this before I, 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 I share this, what I'm going to share. You're here today, and thank you for being here. But for every one of you that's in the building today, and in this church, or a church much like it, there are 20 people that aren't. Used to be everybody went to church. What happened? In the door-to-door survey conducted by a large mega church, the question was asked at door-to-door survey, if you don't go to church, why? If you don't go to church, why? Here were the five biggest reasons given. Reason number one. Ready for this? Church is boring. Church is boring. How many of you grew up 
Your parents drug you to church, and you thought, oh, this is boring. How many of you would raise your hand and agree with that? If you grew up here, please don't raise your hand. Okay. <laughs> I will tell Pastor Brown on you. All right. Um, church is boring. All right, here's the second reason. Church is irre- irrelevant. Church is irrelevant. What they're talking about in the church, I have no idea, and I don't have any clue how it applies to my life today. The third reason people gave is they're always asking for my money. They're always after my money. The fourth reason given in this survey is I'm too busy already with life to worry about church. And the fifth reason given was I feel awkward at church. I feel awkward at church. Now, a lot of this is Satan's doings. Many false religions that God has nothing to do with have confused people. And God is not at work now in these religious institutions, nor has he ever been. So Satan's done a good job of planting religious buildings all over the place that are boring, irrelevant, uh, uh, money-grabbing places that people want to have nothing to do with. However, however, many people, uh, uh, but there are many good churches uh, that have made themselves into boring, irrelevant places that beg for money. And i got to say that um, I heard a quote recently that said, if you as the pastor will focus on building the ministry and give yourself the ministry, God will take care of making sure the money is there. And that's my philosophy. I want to love the people of the church. I want to give myself to the people of the church. And if I give myself to you and I give myself to the area and I love people, God will take care of making sure that things are financed and things uh, are taken care of in that way. But many churches uh, have their eyes on the wrong thing and uh, they're becoming boring, irrelevant places and people are leaving and then that makes them just grab for more and more money. However, there are people as well, their calendar is too full to want church to be part of their life. They're wore out come Sunday. Now, I guess that's a lot of you too. You're here by raw character. The truth is, if you did what your flesh wanted, you'd be home sprawled out on the couch because you're exhausted. You've been running hard for six days. And getting up and getting cleaned up and coming to church, you're here out of raw character. Life is busy. You know, they keep inventing more technology. And they keep claiming this technology is going to make your life easy. I mean, microwaves and and uh, dinners that you pop in there and, you know, dinner's ready in 20 minutes. Um, I, I beat Angela home yesterday afternoon and I said, do you want me to make lunch for the kids? She said, oh, that would be great. Not, so I'm looking for the chicken nuggets in the freezer. You know, you preheat the oven and stick them in, right? And we were all out of preheat-type food. And so I had to resort to making a grilled cheese. Well, my first attempt ended in a burnt grilled cheese. And so I turned the stove down, and my second attempt was much more successful, only to find out later that the turkey I used was bad. But, hey, the kids ate it, so it's all good. Um, Hopefully they don't get sick. Amen? But... um, um, Technology is supposed to make life easy, and, and, and it's supposed to give us more time. But you know what we do? We cram more things into the schedule. 
And we get more busy and more busy and more busy. And then before you know it, we're running uh, so hard, so fast every day that uh, you turn around come Sunday and church is hard to go to because I'm exhausted and I need a break. The truth is some of you here today aren't real faithful because on some Sundays you're you're resting instead of uh, being here because you are just exhausted because you are too busy. And then there's other people, they've just been away from church so long that they feel awkward going back. I know many people this way. Well, I'd go, but, you know, what are people going to say to me? It's been six months, it's been a year since I've been there. Football is in the fall. Basketball in the winter, baseball in the spring and summer. The pastor, uh, this pastor has been an avid sports fan all his life. But I've had it. I quit the sports business once and for all. You can't get me uh, to go near one of those places again. You want to know why? Every time I ever went, they asked me for money. The people with whom I had to sit didn't seem very friendly. The seats were too hard and they weren't at all comfortable. I went to many games, but the coach never came to call on me. The referee made a decision with which I could not agree. I suspected that I was sitting with some hypocrites. They, they came to see their friends and, and, and what others were wearing rather than to see the game. Some games went into overtime and I was late getting home. The band played some numbers that I had never heard before. It, it, it seems that the games are scheduled and I want to do other things and I was taken, uh, 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 to too many games by my parents when I was growing up and I didn't want to take my children to any games because I want them to choose for themselves what sports they like best. You see, see how phony these arguments sound when we're so devoted to sports but we will throw any excuse possible at the wall for church. Now, devotion to church may not fit the cultural norm anymore. But it is still something that God has called us to do. It may not be popular in the culture, but it's still something God has called us to do and participate in. It, it is His place, don't miss this, it is His place of protection for the Christian. This is the place where you get protected from a sinful world that's looking to beat down on you. Now, you may ask, can you worship Jesus without being part of the church? And I would say, of course you can. Of course you can. But, will you long term? Probably not. Probably not. Being involved in church is like being on a sports team. Like being on a sports team. Can you learn a lot about football by sitting down on the couch Saturdays and Sundays of football season and watching the game? How many of you men here know what pass interference is? All right? Okay. How many of you would be capable of committing pass interference on an NFL receiver? Not happening. They're going to leave you standing at the line of scrimmage. Right? Um, You can learn a lot about sports by watching it on TV. I've got some military men in the crowd. You can know a lot about the military without ever going to boot camp. 
But you're not going to be a soldier unless you're willing to go through boot camp and go through the rigid, rugged training that you got to go through to be uh, in the military. And you can know a lot about God in church uh, uh, by watching uh, uh, church on TV and watching your favorite uh, preacher on YouTube. You can learn a lot about God that way. But i got to tell you that you're not actually going to grow uh, as an athlete without being on a team and having a coach that runs you through drills and practices and gets in your face and steps on your toes and motivates you and teammates that come around you and pick you up uh, when you're down and having a tough time or you had a bad game and the pastor is your coach. Sometimes he's going to get in your face. He's going to say, hey, the Word of God says, thus saith the Lord and you're not doing this right and you've got to step your game up, Christian. And uh, other times you're going to be down and uh, the other church members are going to come along and help pick you up and, and one day you get down 20 years down the road to going to church and you see, wow, I have grown so much for the Lord because I got on the team and I got into a church and the Lord was able to grow me as a Christian and as a person because I took it serious. I took it serious. Listen, any old anybody can go buy a ticket and sit in the crowd and get a big old thing of nachos and cheese and popcorn and a soda and yell and scream and bicker and complain about the players not playing good. But you know, it takes somebody special Who's willing to go through the blood, sweat, and tears of practice? Get out on the field and compete. And Paul, the Apostle Paul, used the analogy of a Christian as an athlete. Running a race. Training for a race. And it takes devotion. It takes hard work. And God created the church in order uh, to have that training ground. That place of protection. That place of growth. Being involved in a local church is commanded in New Testament scriptures. It's commanded over and over and over again. Now, I had someone say to me one time, uh, where is the idea of local church found in the Bible? How many of you ever wondered that? Where is local? Where does the Bible say you've got to be part of a local church? Pastor, I watch Joel Osteen on TV. I'm part of his satellite church. Now, the New Testament... Half of it is written. The title of the books are local New Testament churches. I'd say God endorses the local New Testament church. Corinthians, the church of Corinth. Uh, Galatians, the church of Galatia. Ephesians, where we're at today, was written to the local church of Ephesus. Philippians, to the church of Philippi. Colossians, to the church of Colossae. On down it goes. Half of the New Testament books were written to local autonomous churches because that's God's plan and that's God's creation. He wants you to be there and involved as part of that of that church. Um, uh, so this morning, uh, I want to say that the church is valued by Jesus Christ himself. And uh, the Bible tells us in Acts 20, verse 28, uh, that uh, that pastors are to take good care of God's local church. It continues by saying that he has purchased the church with his blood. With his blood. If you buy something with your blood, I'd say you value that. Say you value that. This church, White Oak Baptist Church, and all the other gospel preaching, gospel teaching churches around the globe. Boy, let me tell you something. God's paying attention to what's going on right here, right now. Um, you ever miss church on a Sunday and thought, I wonder if the pastor noticed I wasn't there? You ever had that thought? I wonder if I was even noticed. Now, 
I sit here every Sunday morning during the song service and I look over the crowd. And one thing I have tried, tried to train myself to do in the two years of being your pastor is not see who is here, but to see who isn't here. And I'm working at that. I don't have it down. You might miss a couple of weeks in a row and I may not even notice. We have a lot of people that come here. A lot of people that flow in and out of the pew. And, and, uh, and the more regular you become, the more uh, likely it is that I will recognize that you're not here. But can I tell you something? God notices when you're not here. He knows when you're not in your place. And that does disappoint Him. He created this place for you. If you're not a member here, we've got some folks in the, uh, that are attending here today. Wherever you're a member of your local gospel preaching church, He created that place for you. And He wants you to be faithful to it. He purchased the church with His blood. And by the way, I, getting way, way down to the very, very basics, and this needs to be said, the church is not 5344 Main Street. The church is not brick and mortar. It's not uh, asphalt and, and grass and, and pews and pulpits and, and, and choir seats uh, and, and pianos and organs. Uh, the church is me and you. It's the collection of the bodies of believers. Uh, the government could come take the building away from us. White Oak Baptist Church still exists as us. We make up the church. And so if we are the church, the people, and you're not here, then part of the church is not in its place. It's not doing its thing. God purchased the church with his blood. He, that means he purchased you with his blood and you help make up that congregation, that, that body of the church. This morning I propose that God has carefully structured the church. So uh, uh, everything that God does, he does with great order. You ever go out at night and look up in the sky? You see the, the galaxy, you see the constellations. You see how those stars are light years apart and how they make a, a perfect formation. You know why they're in such great orders? Because God did that. Everything God does has great order. The church is no different. The church was made with great order. Once we understand the purpose of the church and the structure of the church... Then we can grow within that structure and fulfill the real purpose that God has for each of us within the church. So this morning, we're going to look at three aspects of the church, three aspects uh, of the structure of the church. Number one, notice first aspect number one, notice the church's foundation, the church's foundation. Look back with me at verses number 18 and 20. The Bible says, uh, uh, first of all, notice letter A, it's cornerstone. Verse 18, for through him, through who? Through Jesus. For, for through him, Jesus, we both have access by one spirit unto the Father. Look down at verse number 20. The Bible says, and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. So if you're going to build a building, the foundation is of great importance. I shared this in class, we were talking about, in Sunday school class, we were talking about the foundation of the, of the home, not the church, but I, I talked about how that one ministry I was a part of, the, they bought the property next door to had a couple of houses sitting on it. We went to knock those houses down to put a parking lot there once we got the tenants to move out and we found out that one of them was just built on the dirt. There was no foundation. Just built right down on the dirt. And they had put subflooring and flooring down over Dirt. Needless to say, it was very easy to knock that house over. I didn't even know you could do that. 
That house was not built very well. The foundation of something is so utterly important. And I got to say that the the better the foundation is, the longer that building will last. Uh, we live in a historic area. There are houses that are two, three hundred years old around here. And a house cannot live that long unless the foundation is good. Now, you look at the church, the church, the foundation was laid 2000 years ago when Jesus created the church. We're not talking about a structure that's 200 years old or an organization that's 200 years old. We're talking about a, an organization in the church that's 2000 plus years old. I think back to our founding of our country when uh, the universities of Harvard and Yale, even prior to the founding of our country, were established. They were established as divinity schools to train men for the ministry. Can you see how those organizations have strayed? They're not teaching that anymore. That, that isn't even on, uh, on the docket or on the schedule. They might have some liberal theologian classes, but they're not teaching true theology. Why? Because the foundation wasn't as solid as the foundation that was laid for the church. Why has the foundation held up so strong? Why 2,000 years later is there still a number of churches that still teaching and preaching the Bible? Well, the reason is, is because the foundation was solid. And the cornerstone, the chief cornerstone of that foundation is the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord Jesus Christ. It's easy for a structure to stand the test of time when uh, the cornerstone of that structure is perfect. The Bible tells us that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Letter B, we see its core. Its core. So Jesus is the cornerstone, but verse 20 tells us that there's more to the foundation than just the cornerstone. Look at back at verse 20. It says, and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, the apostles and the prophets. These men took the gospel message all around the known world, the known civilized world, and proclaimed the truth, and churches were established and settled. And these churches, these first churches, including the churches of Ephesus and Galatia and Philippi and Thessalonica and and many, many others there in in the Macedonian uh, region or modern-day Turkey, many of those churches uh, make up the foundation that which we're structured on top of today. First Peter goes on to say that each generation of the church adds lively stones to the building up of this, uh, 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 on top of this foundation. And it's our turn today to make sure that we contribute uh, uh, to the church that Jesus Christ has left us. So we see the church's foundation. It was built on the cornerstone of Jesus Christ and the core of the apostles and the prophets. Number two, notice the church's framework. The church's framework. Look down at verse number 21 of Ephesians chapter 2. The Bible says, in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth unto an holy temple in the Lord. Now, there's a lot here. We won't, uh, we won't uh, exegete the verse as much as we could today. But the idea here is that the building has a, a framework. Now, like I said earlier, uh, when God does something, he does it with great order. And so church is not a cultural idea. Church is God's idea. You meeting here today doesn't may not please the culture, but it pleases the Lord. It, your goal in coming to church is not to please your pastor. 
Your goal is to please the Heavenly Father. And by being here today, you are, you are doing that. Uh, uh, now, that's the bare minimum of what you ought to do as a Christian. But being in church pleases the Lord. And why? Because it's His creation. And if God created the church, then He has a structure for which He wants it to run by and exist. Notice letter A. It's offices. It's offices. I'm going to give you uh, two, the two offices that are laid out in Scripture. The first office is the office of the pastor. The office of the pastor. I believe that goes up on the screen there. Can you take your Bible back to Jeremiah chapter number 3? Now, uh, pastor in the Old Testament and pastor in the New Testament are not quite the same thing. For the sake of the message, though, I'm not going to... Uh, get into a long theological explanation uh, in the difference between an Old Testament and New Testament pastor. But I will say this, is that God uh, uh, wants the same things from His New Testament pastors that He wanted from His Old Testament pastors. Look at Jeremiah 3 and look at verse number 15. I have this verse on the wall in my office. It says there, And I will give you pastors according to mine own heart which shall feed you with knowledge and understanding. Notice there the Bible says that the pastors are men that are after his own heart. His own heart. The pastor is to lovingly lead, not impatiently drive. Lovingly lead, not impatiently push. Um, He is to understand and follow the heartbeat of God. You know, my job as the pastor of this church is to spend so much time walking with God that I know what his heartbeat is for you. And then it's my job to convince you to get in line with that heartbeat. A lot of churches, if if we could take you to the doctor, a spiritual doctor, and diagnose a lot of churches, the problem with the church is that the pastor has an irregular heartbeat and the church members have an irregular heartbeat. By irregular, I don't mean like in, in like medical, the medical world. I mean your heartbeat is irregular in that it is not in line with the Lord. Now, the Bible tells us in Jeremiah 3 that the pastor is to understand and know the heartbeat of God and to help feed that, teach that, model that, demonstrate that to the church. If you look at the concept or the role of the pastor throughout the book of Jeremiah, you'll find that Jeremiah rebukes the pastors because they were not doing their job. In fact, this is the only positive verse in the entire book about pastors. There's many, many other references to pastors in the book, but they're being reprimanded because they hold the position, but they're not doing the work. I'll give you one example. Turn over to Jeremiah 23. Jeremiah 23, verse 1. And I think, sadly, that this describes many, many pastors today. It is my prayer that this does not describe me and never will. But unfortunately, many pastors, I believe it does. Jeremiah 23, verse 1 says this, Woe be unto the pastors that destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture, saith the Lord. I think of a shepherd. And that's what a pastor is, is a shepherd. In fact, the Spanish translation of pastor is the word shepherd. It is the word shepherd. Spanish-speaking people call their pastor their shepherd. 
And that word pastor means shepherd or under shepherd. He is the shepherd. And I am to be your, the under shepherd of White Oak Baptist Church. That's a very uh, important job. To be very transparent with you this morning, oftentimes I don't feel qualified. I don't feel capable. I feel very challenged. Well, what is a shepherd supposed to do? How is he supposed to handle the sheep? Lovingly and carefully. He protects them. When they're hurt, he's there to help them heal. When they're being cantankerous and stubborn, he's willing to look them in the eye and say, you're not doing things right. And not because he hates them, but because he loves them. Some, you ever see a shepherd, he has a staff. One end is a rod, the other end has a hook. And as a, one of the little lambs begins to stray away, he'll use that hook to wrap around the neck and gently pull that lamb back into the fold. And he'll do it again and again and again. But if that lamb is just determined to go his own way and live his own way, he'll turn that around and he'll break the leg of that lamb and force him to lie down. To break that will. Sometimes when I stand up and I preach the Bible and I preach it with passion. I hope never out of a spirit of anger, but I preach it with passion. The idea there is to chasten those who are going astray and to remind them that God's way is best. God's way is best. God has given every every church, or God desires to give every church, a man who is a pastor who will follow his heartbeat for the people. But notice the second office laid out in the Bible for structure's sake is that of a deacon, or the deacons. You can throw that up on the screen there, deacons. The role of the deacons was set up after the early church had exploded in growth. Turn over with me to Acts chapter 6. We're going to use our Bibles a little bit this morning. Acts chapter number 6. That's where you find the very, very first deacons being, being chosen. Now, while you're finding your way there, let me just say this before we get deep into this point. Is that our church is in need of some men to step up and be deacons. And so I would encourage you to turn over to, uh, on your own time, turn over to 1 Timothy 3 and study uh, what a deacon is and what the qualifications are. And if you meet the minimum qualifications, step up and begin to meet the other ones and so that uh, you can help be a deacon of, of White Oak Baptist Church. We've had Brother Verone move to... Um, uh, moved to Georgia, and Brother uh, Segru, uh, due to age and health, has recently resigned. And so we are in need of at least a deacon or two uh, to help us as we lead the church forward. But many people have the wrong idea of what a deacon is and what a deacon does. Acts 6 tells us what deacons are supposed to do. Look at verse 1. It says, And in those days, when the number of the disciples was multiplied, there arose a murmuring of the Grecians against the Hebrews. Because their widows were neglected in the daily ministration. Then the twelve called the multitude of the disciples unto them and said, It is not reason that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Wherefore, brethren, look ye out among you seven men of honest report, full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. What business? Taking care of the widows and uh, serving tables. Deacons, the first deacons that were chosen, were chosen because 
the widows were being neglected because the pastors were so busy studying the Bible and trying to get God's heartbeat on things to lead the people that the widows were being neglected and uh, people were not being served. The, the ministry work wasn't getting done. And so they said, hey, we're not going to leave studying the Scriptures. Let's find seven men that are filled with the Holy Spirit and wisdom and let's send them out to do this work for us. What are uh, deacons supposed to do? They're primarily, first and foremost, they're to be filled with the Holy Spirit. That means they, they, they live their lives submissive to the Holy Spirit of God. They let God lead in their hearts. Second, they're filled with wisdom. Where do they get that wisdom from? Well, they ask for it, and they study their Bible, and they get it from God's Word. And these are men who are doing their best to walk that path. And uh, the third qualification here in Acts 6 we see is that these are men who have a servant's heart. They have an attitude of, Pastor, you tell me what you need, and I'm there doing my best to get it done. You have a Sunday school class that needs to be taught. I don't know that I'm the best teacher in the world, but listen, I'll be a warm body that stands up and studies God's Word and and shares it with people. And Pastor, you need help uh, uh, getting the building clean. Uh, You tell me where and when to get there, and and I'll help with that. And Pastor, uh, there's somebody that needs to be visited and followed up on, and I've noticed they've not been in their place on, on Sundays. I'm there loving on them and helping them. This is the office of the deacon, and the idea here is that the pastor and the deacons form a net underneath the church to help catch the those who are weak and struggling in the faith, those who are uh, weak physically and, and have physical ailments and no family to help them. And this is a team. Now, in 2018, in most Baptist churches, that's not what deacons do. What most deacons do is they wear fancy suits, they drive nice cars, and they know how to sit in a boardroom and look at the pastor skeptically and advise him. Now, i got to tell you, I'm thankful for the, uh, the four deacons that I, I got when I arrived. And um, uh, three of them are still in the church. I value their advice. I ask for it regularly. As a young man... I'm not going to pretend to be wiser than I am. I know where I have holes in my game. And I know which deacons are capable of stepping up and helping me uh, with, uh, with those shortcomings. And, and I need them to advise me at times. But that was not why the deacon was created. That was not the primary role of the deacon. And so if you're going to be a deacon at our church, then you need to be someone who is fervent about the gospel and fervent for the Lord. And I would encourage many of you men in the church who are right on the cusp of being qualified to get busy. One of the things I want to make sure I say here is that uh, I was very blessed to get here. All four men who were deacons when I arrived were actively involved in the soul winning program of the church. And i got to say that's so important. That you know how to share your faith. You know how to tell others about Jesus. And that is going to remain. That was a qualification before I got here. That is going to remain a qualification. By the way, you continue reading down Acts 6, 7, 8, 9, and 10. And what you find is that these deacons were busy preaching the gospel. That's uh, that's God's plan here uh, for that. So if you're a man here uh, and uh, you um, uh, you uh, want to be a deacon, I would say read over those qualifications and get to work. And uh, in time, uh, uh, inside of God's will, that will happen. So uh, the structure of the church, the framework, the church's framework, we see first its offices. I want to spend just a few minutes talking about its ordinances, its ordinances. Now, there are two ordinances of the church. 
And uh, there's been a lot of confusion amongst many of our visitors lately as far as uh, what these ordinances are and how they work. I have answered more questions about our church's ordinances the last six months uh, than, uh, than, than any other uh, time of my life. And so I think it's important that I take a few minutes and I address what they are and how they work biblically. First, notice the ordinance of baptism, of baptism. Let's look at some scripture on baptism, shall we? Turn over to Matthew chapter 3. Matthew's the first book in the New Testament. Matthew chapter number 3. Look at verse number 13 with me. The first thing I want you to notice about baptism is that Jesus was baptized. Jesus was baptized. Look here. It says, Then cometh Jesus from Galilee to Jordan unto John to be baptized of him. But John forbade him, saying, I have need to be baptized of thee, and comest thou to me? And Jesus answering and said unto him, Suffer it to be so now, for thus it becometh so fulfill all righteousness. Then he suffered him. And Jesus, when he was baptized, went up straightway out of the water, and lo, the heavens were opened unto him. And he saw the Spirit of God ascending like a dove and lightning upon him. So why do I point out that Jesus was baptized? There are a lot of people who will not get baptized because they think it's weird. They think the whole process of putting on a robe and getting in the pool and getting dunked, that that's just odd. And I would say, if it wasn't too weird for Jesus to do it, then it isn't too weird for you to do it. If Jesus can get baptized, then all of us should get baptized. He did it to be an example to us. Second, uh, the second thing I want to say about baptism this morning is what the word baptism means. Now, the word, uh, the root word for baptism in the Greek is the word baptizo. Baptizo. Now, you, uh, it's funny how this works. When you see the word baptism, you define that by the culture you were raised in. For many of you here today that don't know better, that is a baptistry, but you could walk in a Catholic church and the art of sprinkling a child, to you that's baptism. When you see the word baptism, you might think of both things. But the the deal here is that in the New Testament, when you were a Greek speaker and you saw the word baptizo, you didn't think sprinkle and you didn't think getting dunked. What you thought, what you saw was the words submerged or consumed, depending on the context. When you saw the word baptizo, uh, they saw the word baptizo, they had the same thought you have when you see the word consumed or you see the word submerged. That's how they read it. That's how they find it. That's how they understood it. Now, with that said, sprinkling is not baptism. Sprinkling a baby, or anybody else for that matter, is not baptism. Why? Because it does not involve the submersion of that person underwater. You can't be consumed or submerged by just getting sprinkled. Is that a common sense statement everybody understands this morning? The third thing I want to point out this morning is that baptism always follows belief. Everywhere in the Bible. Baptism always follows belief. Another reason why a baby shouldn't be sprinkled or baptized, as uh, the uh, Protestant Catholic world would call it, is because a baby can't believe. 
baby can't believe it. He doesn't understand that he's a sinner. A baby doesn't understand there's consequences for a sin. And a baby doesn't understand uh, that Jesus died on the cross for him. And a baby doesn't understand how to exercise faith in a God who he doesn't even know about yet. So if a baby can't believe, a baby shouldn't be baptized. Let me give you some proof of that in Scripture. Turn over to Mark chapter 16. Mark 16 and verse number 15. And look here. The two, by the way, the two in Scripture, in a couple of places, are almost inseparable. That isn't because baptism is a part of salvation. It's because baptism is the first command of obedience after baptism. And so it's understood that if you're going to get saved, then you need to get baptized. Look at chapter 16 and verse 15. The Bible says, and he said unto them, go ye. This is Jesus, by the way. This is Jesus getting ready to ascend back up to heaven. These are the last words he's going to give to his disciples before he ascends back up. He's giving them their their marching orders, okay? Think of a general on the battlefield getting ready to leave and go somewhere, and he's giving his soldiers the marching orders before they go. That's what this is. Look at verse 15. And he, Jesus, said unto them, these are the marching orders, Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel. What is the gospel? It's the good news of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. Preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, and he that believeth not shall be damned or condemned. So by not believing, you are condemned to hell. But once you believe, baptism is to follow. You see there the prerequisite to baptism? It's believing. Now turn over to Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8. I've got to move quickly here. Acts chapter 8, verse 36. Here we find uh, uh, Philip, one of the deacons of the first church. God's moved him to the desert so that he can meet an Ethiopian man traveling from Jerusalem back to Ethiopia. And he comes up on the man and he's reading the 53rd uh, chapter of Isaiah and he has no idea what it means. So Philip, uh, by the command of the Spirit, climbs up in the chariot and explains to the man that this chapter is talking about the, uh, the, the prophecy of Jesus coming and dying. And, and, and the man, look at verse 36. And as they went on their way, they came into a certain water. And the eunuch said, they're in the desert, they come up on water. See, here is water. What doth hinder me to be baptized? Now, that's a great question. The eunuch wants to be baptized. All right. He's asking, what is standing between me and getting baptized in this pool of water. Uh, Philip's going to give him the only prerequisite to baptism. Look at verse 37. And Philip said, If thou believest with all thine heart, thou mayest. Believest what? Well, the explanation was about Jesus. If thou believest, thou mayest. See, and he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Because he had exercised his faith for salvation, he could be baptized. And so, uh, what is baptism? Well, it's to be submerged or consumed. It was given to us by Jesus as an example, and baptism always follows belief. Uh, the last thing I want you to understand on this topic of baptism here is that baptism is the first step of obedience after salvation. Turn back over to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, verse 38. There's a lot of confusion with this verse when it comes to Pentecostals, but I hope to give you a quick, accurate explanation here. The Bible says, 
Then, then Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Now let's set the Holy Ghost thing aside for a moment. I, I could explain that in great detail, but that's not the purpose of the message this morning. The idea of repenting and baptism. Okay? Uh, uh, sometimes when you see the word for in the English language, uh, it means... Uh, as a part of, other times it means because of, alright? I believe here that word for, following Christ, in between Christ and remission, means because of, alright? Let's put that thought in here. Then Peter saith unto them, repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ, because of the remissions of sin, remission of sins. Because your sins have been re, uh, redeemed, have been forgiven, have been dismissed, your, your case has been cleared with God. Because of that, you need to be baptized. And 3,000 of them that day in Acts 2 not only got saved, but followed the Lord in baptism. And so the very, very, very first step of obedience in Christ is Baptism. It's baptism. So we need to follow the Lord in baptism. I'll say this uh, this morning. Um, you do not get, need to get baptized to be saved. Okay, you can go to heaven without getting baptized. There's plenty of examples of that in the Bible. But you are not living. You are not living in obedience to Christ if you have been saved, but you haven't gotten baptized. It is the wedding ring of salvation. I wear a wedding ring on the fourth finger of my left hand because I am attached to my wife. This is meant to identify. If I take this thing off, if I can get it off, and I set it right here and walk away, I'm still a married man. That has no power to marry me. Uh, uh, it doesn't have any power to keep me married. If I lost this, I'd still be married. Many men go to work and they take their ring off because they don't want to lose their finger in the process, right? And they're still married while they're at work. While this ring has no power to make me married or unmarried, it does identify me with Jesus, or rather with Angela. And that baptistry pool, it does not have the power to save you or unsave you, but it does have the power to identify you with Jesus. And it is commanded to do that so that we can uh, be like him. Uh, notice quickly here the second ordinance, and I'm, I'm almost done with the message here. Notice the Lord's Supper, the Lord's Supper. So we looked at baptism. And uh, the second ordinance or ceremony of the church is the Lord's Supper. Really quick, turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse number 24. Uh, it is important that I teach, explain, preach this this morning. We live in a highly Catholic area. And many of you come from a Catholic background. And you have Catholic doctrine that you bring in here with you. And I'm just going to say this morning that while I don't mean to attack the Catholic Church per se, I do want you to understand that the Catholic Church has these ordinances wrong, dead wrong. Their teaching on these things is dead wrong on what baptism is and what it does and what the Lord's Supper is and what it does. First Corinthians chapter 11, there's some key words here that the Catholic Church just seems to ignore. Look at verse number 24. It says there, And when he had given thanks, he break it, speaking of Jesus, and said, Notice the words in red. How many of you have the words in red in your Bible? Okay, these are Jesus's words. Take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. In remembrance of me. Verse 25, in the same manner also after the, uh, he took the cup, and uh, which, uh, when he had supped, saying, this cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do ye as oft as ye drink it in remembrance of me. This was to be a memorial. Nothing more, nothing less. 
Every time that the, uh, the, the that a body of believers gathered, we call that church, and ate unleavened bread, that was to be a memorial of the broken body of Jesus on the cross. Nothing more, nothing less. Every time that they drank of the, the cup of the vine, the juice, uh, the wine, or the cup of the vine, uh, uh, juice of the vine there, uh, that was to represent the blood. Uh, the body, the bread and the juice, they do not turn into the body and blood of Christ. You all understand that, I hope, this morning. That would be cannibalism. We're not cannibals. We don't eat someone's flesh and drink their blood. By the way, the work of Jesus is finished, E.D., finished. If it is becoming the body and blood again, that means the work of Christ is not finished. That goes against every doctrine of the Bible. So the Lord's Supper is to be observed by the church. So we hear we do it every other month. And in that time, your heart is to be pure and right. Now, I, I also want to make sure I get this in. Point number three, I'll spend less than two or three minutes on. I promise. I'm almost done here. I know you're getting hungry for some spaghetti. Amen? Here's what I want to get at. We ask that you be both saved and baptized to partake in the Lord's Supper. Now, why do we do that? Early in 1 Corinthians 11, it explains that if your heart is not right with God, then you shouldn't take the Lord's Supper. If you have been saved, but you've not been baptized, then what you're saying is, I don't want to obey you, Jesus. How then can you take the Lord's Supper? Does everyone understand what I'm getting at here? So a person needs to be saved and baptized. And once that's been done, your sins confess. There's no ought between you and God. There's no ought uh, or problems between you and another brother or sister in Christ that you haven't tried to clear up and take care of. And once that has been done and your sins are confessed and your relationships are good, then take the bread and take the wine and uh, or the vine juice there and and remember the Lord in that way. Number three, notice lastly, the church's focus. The church's focus. I believe that there are three pillars that a good, godly church rests on. Letter A, the pillar of sound doctrine. Sound doctrine. Let me just read for you a couple of verses here. Titus chapter 1, verse 9. You can write these down. And um, uh, you can write these down and um, look at them later. Titus 1, 9 says, holding fast. By the way, this is Paul speaking to his preacher boy about how to pastor the church. Okay, So this is one of the pillars of the church's focus. Holding fast the faithful words as he hath been taught, that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and to convince the gainsayers. So as you pick a church or as you go to a church, you need to make sure that church has sound doctrine. Titus 2.1, but speak thou uh, uh, the things which become sound doctrine. What is doctrine? Doctrine is teachings. So the sermons need to be chucked, filled with Scripture. We work hard to do that here. The second pillar of a, of a, uh, of a, of a, of a church's focus is that of socially diverse. It is socially diverse. Um, write the, write this down. We're not going to read the verses, but you can uh, go back and look at this later. Acts chapter 4 verses 32 through 35. What you find is that rich people in the church are selling off their properties and they're giving the money to the church so that they can distribute to the needs of the poor. You say, oh, that's socialism. No, no, no. Socialism is when it's forced. This was being done voluntarily. They weren't looking at somebody that walked in the door that was poor and broken and going, ooh, keep them over there. No, no, no. They were saying, let me embrace you. 
Not just outwardly, let me take my money and embrace you. Let me better your life. You see how this church was socially diverse. They had rich people. They had poor people. And both fit at the church. Uh, I had a meeting yesterday with uh, several area pastors, and we were talking and meeting, and uh, uh, they were getting to know me, and, and I told them where the church was, and I said, one of the things I love about White Oak Baptist Church is that on any given Sunday, we can have a Yale professor walk in and sit down, and we can have someone who had been locked up in prison in Bridgeport uh, just just the week prior, both come in and sit down in our church at the same time, and they're both loved, and they both feel accepted, and they both hear the same gospel truth. That's a socially diverse church. Amen? That's a healthy church. By the way, this diversity goes on beyond the social diversity. It goes into age diversity. We have our senior saints, and we have our children right back over here. And a church that is healthy is a church that's diverse in age. And it's also a church that, uh, where possible, depending on the location, has racial or cultural diversity. I love that here at our church, we've got folks that speak Spanish. We've got folks that speak Creole. We've got folks uh, uh, from Africa, and we've got folks from Asia, and we've got folks from South America, and the pastor is married to someone from South America. We are ethnically diverse, and I think God looks down at that. I know He does, and He's pleased by that. In fact, 1 Corinthians twelve thirteen tells us whether there be Jews or Gentiles, whether we be bond or free, that we're all baptized into one spirit uh, in Christ Jesus. So a healthy church is a church that is a, a church that is diverse. Letter C, notice a sweet demeanor, a sweet demeanor. Romans fourteen sixteen says, Let not then your good be evil spoken of. I know some pastors. They are what I'd call bad attitude Baptists. They not only hate sin, but they hate the people in the pew. Ah! I'm going to rip your head off and spit down your throat and do it in a dramatic fashion. And I'm going to push my standards into your face and you're going to follow them or you're going to be of the devil. And that's their attitude. The Bible says, hey, look, that's fine that you have a high moral standard, but let not your good be evil spoken of. You can, look, I'm against just about everything, but you don't have to, I don't have to be mean about it. Amen? Ephesians 4.15 puts it this way, but speaking the truth in love. So the three pillars, the three pillars of a healthy church when it comes to focus is sound doctrine, socially diverse and sweet demeanor. Let me finish with this. This was a pastor's observation. I often visit, not mine, another pastor's observation. He said this, he said, I often visit newcomers in town and find them to be church shopping. They want to know what they can get out of church. Churches are one more, listen to this, consumer commodity. Worship services are not a place for us to serve God and neighbor, but a place where people expect to purchase the best. Inspiring music, uh, rather inspiring worship, good music, moving sermons, quality child care, as if we buy God and not vice versa. This morning, I want to each of you to ask yourself this question. What is my motive in attending church? What is my motive in attending church? Let me give you many common reasons that are not healthy. I'm just going to read through the list here. Many people attend church because they say it makes me feel good. That's the wrong reason. When you quit feeling good, you'll quit coming. It fulfills a spiritual obligation. Not a good reason to come to church. 
Some people would say, it's just what I've always done. It's just what I've always done. Not a good reason. The last one I wrote down here is, and this list isn't all inclusive, but social pressure. Your parents make you come. People in the church make you feel like you have to be here. Bad reasons to come to church. What should motivate you to be faithful to church? Well, here I wrote some, uh, some down. I'll just read through the list here. An understanding that God has my best interest at heart. God, with that in mind, God has commanded it. So God has my best interest at heart and he's commanded it. So that must mean that that's what's best for me. Here's another one. It gives me a place to be challenged and to grow. It gives me an avenue to serve the God who has saved me. It provides a place to teach my children biblical morals. It holds me and my family to a moral standard. It is a place where I am fed the milk of the Word of God. Now, if your motive for coming to church is wrong, then you will eventually stop coming. And Satan will have his way with your heart and your home. So this morning, I would encourage you to evaluate your motives. And if your motives are wrong... Now let's make them motives that please the Lord. Let's have our heads bowed and eyes closed this morning. How many here today say today, Pastor, I know beyond all shadow of a doubt that I have put my faith and trust in Jesus to save me. If I were to die today, I would spend eternity in heaven, not because of who I am and what I've done, but because of what he did. And I have placed my faith and trust in Jesus. Here's my hand in testimony of that. Would you raise your hand if you have made that decision. Is there one here today that say, Pastor, I don't know for sure that if I were to die, I'd go to heaven. I'm just not sure of that. Pastor, would you please pray for me? That you, would you just slip up your hand so I can pray for you? I don't know for sure that if I were to die, I'd go to heaven. How many here today say, Pastor, my motives for attending church not been the purest lately? I've been doing it for what I can get out of it, not for what I can give. I have been treating church like a consumer commodity, not treating church like a place where I can go and grow and give. Pastor, pray that God works on my heart and I value church the way I ought to. If that's you, you just slip up your hand so I can pray for you. Is there anyone here that way? Pastor, please pray for me. How many here today say, Pastor, I'm going through a very trying time in my life right now. Pastor, would you please pray that God would help me as I go through these difficulties? If that's you, would you just raise your hand? I'd like to be able to pray for you. Keep them up for a minute so I can see who you are. I can make a mental note. Lord, I do pray for each one that has raised their hand. And Lord, some may be carrying a problem and a hurt too private to even feel a safety in raising a hand. Lord, you know the needs. You know the struggles. Would you lift them up? Lord, would we value your church? Would we seek your heart in doing it the right way? May our hearts be in line with yours. Lord, would you give this church men who will lead, men who will be spirit-filled, men who walk by your word, men who serve. Lord, deacons in this church who will help carry the service load, the work of the ministry load. God, would you, would you enable all of us to walk closer with you and mimic the heartbeat you have? In Jesus' name, 
Amen. Let's stand to our feet with our heads bowed and eyes closed. The, the altar's open. The piano's playing. How about it? This morning, Christian, I encourage you to come and kneel. In just a moment, Brother Owens will be standing down front here. If you have a question about the, the service today or a question about how to get to heaven, he would love to take the Bible and answer any questions that you have. If you're here today and you don't know for sure that you're on your way to heaven, please, please, please don't leave today without getting that settled. If you've been saved and not been baptized, we talked about baptism today. Our baptismal waters are ready. We'd love to help you to follow that, make that decision to follow the Lord in that way. If you've been saved and baptized but not join our church, we'd love to help, help you to be able to know what steps to take to do that. Let's make decisions as the piano plays this morning.